You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, New Albany. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. When we think of the messianic prophecies from this perspective, we see that the Old Testament whispers to us about the coming of the Messiah. Join us during our Advent sermon series titled Rumors of the Messiah, where we confirm the whispered prophecies of the Old Testament that told of the birth, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, hear the word of the Lord from Hosea 6, 1-3. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. He has injured us, now he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time, he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of the dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Hey, Pappy. (laughs) That's right. That's my daddy. Didn't think you was coming today. Um, Well, (laughs) it's good to, you know, whatever. We'll talk about it later. We don't need to deal with family stuff in front of everybody. Um, My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Our, Our mission as a church is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, build them up as his church, and send them to follow him in his world. And I'm thankful that you're here to be some part of that. Um, we got a couple of things to talk about before we get started. Uh, some encouragement to dish out. Uh, first, we had our affordable Christmas last week, which if you're not sure what that is or you haven't heard of it, um, we as a church, we donate money and we buy Christmas gifts that we then sell at about a 90% discount to folks in the neighborhood. Uh, we as a church provided 152 gifts this year. Uh, provided, yeah, that's great. Um, and that's, that provided, that essentially created Christmas uh, for 25 families right here in Southern Indiana. Um, and so just a, a special thank you to Kim Lehman, Carissa Smith, Kim Baker for leading that forward. I don't know if they're here. They might be 11 a.m. ladies. Um, but that was, yeah, that was great. Really, really, really proud of their work. Um, also, oh man, I see him. I see him, Eric. We got another happy goodbye to make. We've been doing some happy goodbyes lately. Uh, Eric and Ashley Fultz, this is their last Sunday with us. Eric, raise your hand if people don't, if people don't know you. Eric Fultz and Ashley um, have worked with Crew, which is a, a college ministry here in town, and they've been here f- for several years. They've done just about everything in our church that there is to do in terms of service. Um, and Eric's been in our elder development process for the last year. So he was in our pipeline to become one of our pastors. He's been meeting with us for over a year and just been in a lot of hard situations, brought a lot of wisdom. Um, he's a, a man who's way beyond his years in terms of character and experience and maturity. And then uh, over the last several months, it's just been wild to see how the Lord has kind of redirected his life some. Um, when Eric became a Christian, he was studying to become a doctor. He was in the medical school track, got saved, went into college ministry, has been doing college ministry for several years, and then just kind of had a, a, he can tell you the story, but a wild opportunity to go back to, in essence, medical school to become a physician's assistant. So he's moving up with his wife to Columbus, Indiana, and I just wanted to say, man, you've been a blessing to us. I'm grateful for your friendship, grateful for your ministry. Um, we believe in you and excited to see what the Lord does with you. So thank you for your service to our church. We love you. 
<clears throat> and then um, lastly, uh, it's, <laughs> I can't believe we're still talking about COVID. Y'all know we're still talking about COVID. It's still happening. Um, so we're all in different places. Some of us are wearing masks. Some of us are not wearing masks. Can we agree we're not going to fight about masks anymore? We just go, let's just all agree with that in our spirits. We're not going to be a church that argues about masks. Uh, one thing, if you're here, this probably doesn't apply to you. There's lots of folks who have been a part of our church, who are members of our church that have been home for two years now. Um, and some of them have cancer. Some of them are recovering from cancer. Some of them are in treatment. Some of them are immunocompromised for any number of reasons. And uh, we want to do something special for the folks that have been staying home. So next Sunday, the 26th at 1 p.m., we're having a service. It'll be like all the other services. And it's going to be masked, social distancing, no coffee. So it's going to be, if you remember back to our days of our, our highest levels of restrictions and service modifications, um, because there's people who haven't gone to church for two years. And so if you're watching this at home, next sad Sunday, the 26th at 1 p.m., we're going to have a masked up Merry Christmas. Uh, and so if you know someone who hasn't been to church or if you're here and you're like, is this okay? Should we be doing this or not doing this? Um, we're going to see how that goes. Might be something we continue moving forward. But but spread the word on that and we'll, we'll see you next week. Um, sound good? We good? Okay. Um, y'all ever have had a really bad apology? Uh, can you remember a time someone gave you a really a really bad apology? Um, I just felt uncomfortable. There's a there's a shifting in this quadrant of of the room. Um, I can I can remember about six or seven years ago. I don't know if it was that long ago. I, I can remember uh, having over the, a series of several meetings. Um, we had mediation involved, and I had outside people come in and friends come in to try to mediate a conflict and spelled out. This, 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 this. Here's all the things. This is what the problem is. And the person involved just gave an exasperated, I'm just sorry for everything. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, but uh, man, the, I'm sorry for everything is one of, man, if you want to get me wound up, just tell me you're sorry for everything. Um, sorry for everything drives me crazy. The only worse apology than I'm sorry for everything is I'm sorry you feel this way. You know that one? I'm so mad at you. I'm just so sorry you feel this way. Um, the, the problem, part of the problem is I can be a little bit critical. You can ask my wife about words. Uh, a phrase that was uttered in my house early on in our marriage was, words mean something. And uh, I get particular about words at times. Um, part of my problem with these apologies is they're not apologies at all. And let me try to break this down with us for us for a second. So let's take the example of I'm sorry for everything. When you say that you're sorry for everything, when we say I'm sorry for everything, we're not sorry about anything. In, in order to apologize, you have to own what you've done. We have to take responsibility for what we have done in the situation. And one of the ways you take responsibility for something in a situation is by naming what you have done. We have to understand what we've done to take responsibility for what we've done in order to make right what we have done. And to say, I'm sorry for everything is just an ambiguous, it's like saying, I love everything. What's your favorite ice cream? Every ice cream. When you say, I'm sorry you feel that way, do you see how you're actually making the problem in the situation, the emotional response of the other person? 
When you say, I'm sorry, you feel that way, the problem is the other person's reaction to what you've done, not what you have done. And when you apologize these ways, when we do it, it's something we all do, uh, these ambiguous lack of ownership, lack of responsibility, non-apology apologies, it almost always results in some form of death. And it may not be a physical death, but it could be a, a further death of trust, a further death in the relationship, because you've only compounded the person's hurt. When someone has the courage to say to us, this is how you've hurt me, and we respond by blaming them, it compounds the hurt. When we respond by refusing to take ownership or accountability, it, it compounds the hurt. And all you have to do to understand that is think about the last time someone said to you, I'm sorry for everything, or I'm sorry you feel that way. How did that work for you? I would, I would guess you did not feel relieved after that was said to you, and I would guess that the relationship was not healed after that was said to you. This text that was read for us by Asia, believe it or not, is an apology. Um, it's about making it right with God. And I would, I'll tell you on the surface of this, it looks very beautiful and very sweet. Powerful worship songs have been written based on these few short verses. Um, it's a very simple invitation, and there's two promises that follow it. The simple invitation is in verse 1. It says, come, let us return to the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord. And in the Old Testament, when you see return and to the Lord together in a verse, it's talking about repentance. It's talking about um, a coming home would probably be the closest sense to what the Hebrews meant when they talked about repentance. Turn away and come back home to life with God. So let us return is a poetic way. This is poetry in Hosea 6. Um, let's, it's a poetic way of saying, let's say we're sorry. Let's apologize. Let's come home and, and turn back towards God. Beautiful, simple, clear, clean, um, it gets a little more intense after the simple invitation, two statements and, a, and two promises. So verse one continues, he's torn us to pieces, now he will heal us. He's injured us, now he will bandage our wounds. So the statements, he's torn us to pieces, he's injured us. Just, just hang on to those, put those in your back pocket. We're gonna come back to that in a second. Um, the two promises, of returning. He will heal us. And then the second promise was in verse 2. In just a short time, he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. So come, let us return. Invitation to apologize. Invitation to come home. What are the promises? He will heal us. And then here, verse 2, he will restore us that we might live in his presence. Other English translations that translate a little more literally, a little more word for word, render that this way, verse 2, he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. So on the surface, the promise of returning to God is the promise of healing and wholeness. But isn't it a bit strange that they mention this, he will revive you after two or three days? Um, the, <laughs> this time period is, re is really significant. Um, Israel believed that it took two or three days for a body to start decomposing after death. Uh, this is a poetic way of saying after death, even after two or three days of being dead, he will resurrect you. 
He will, he will raise you back. So these wounds that they have been, in, that have inflicted, been inflicted upon them, that they have received, these, the people of God, these are wounds that lead to death. So there's a combination of both the kind of relational hurts and failures, but also, you know, mortal wounds that they've experienced. The promise here is that if we return to the Lord, we will be resurrected. And you can kind of understand why people write songs about this. Let's come home. Let's say we're sorry. He'll heal us. He'll bind up our wounds. And even after death, he will, he will raise us. So much in, in two short verses. Um, it's, and I think the beauty of it or uh, the excitement of the promises can make us miss um, what a bad apology this is. If you stop at these verses, you, you might be fooled by the words here, in, in the sense of you might find them compelling and believable. But look, look at how God responds to this prayer. If you, can, if you continue down in verses, uh, this is later in chapter 6. I think the reference is wrong on the screen. God responds to it this way. Oh, Israel and Judah, that's just a general for all of his people. What should I do with you, asks the Lord? For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. So we have this seemingly simple, beautiful prayer of apology and repentance from Israel. And God responds by saying, what am I going to do with you? Your love vanishes like dew in the morning. The reason God is responding this way is because this is a fake apology. Or at the very least, it's a bad apology. It's an I'm sorry for everything kind of apology. And we know this because we look at what's going on. If you move back in chapter 5 here, chapter 5 tells us what's happening. And starting in verse 3, we read this of chapter 5. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound. Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jared, but he's unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. So Ephraim and Judah are tribes of Israel. These are the people of God. God's people, sick and wounded, dying, what did they do? They turned to a foreign king asking him for help. They turned away from the Lord and look to some earthly, worldly power to meet their needs and to heal them. They took matters into their own hands, and they turned to a king who was unable to heal them. Again, this wound, it's a wound that leads to sickness and to death, and no earthly king can bring about a resurrection. So God continues, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I will go away and return to my place, listen, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. He's saying, because they've turned from me, they'll be torn to pieces. Have you ever noticed how the punishment for sin is so often wrapped up in the sin itself? Here's what I mean. Try to imagine that you're dying of thirst. This is how people function. This is so much of what I observe all of us doing. Uh, imagine you're dying of thirst, and on your right side is a pool of clean, fresh water, and on the left is a pool of diseased salt water, which is filled with bacteria, and it's gross. And we people like looking at these waters and saying, you know what? The salt water sounds good. 
I read somewhere on the internet that salt water actually helps more than fresh water and that the bacteria in here will actually, I know God said to get the clean water and then we go and we drink the salt diseased water. Then we find ourselves more thirsty. We find ourselves more sick, worse off than we were before. And then we say, why God? <laughs> why would you do this to me? It's like, listen, man, I told you, if you drink that water, it will only make it worse for you. If, if you sin against someone, and you lie to cover it up, does that make it better or worse? So often the punishment for sin is wrapped up in the sin itself, and God says to them here, you will experience the consequences of your sin until you acknowledge your guilt. That's the key. Because if you read this at the end of verse five, or end of chapter five, they will be torn to pieces. They will experience the consequences of their sin until they acknowledge their guilt. And then you jump to this prayer right after this in chapter six. What you will find is they never acknowledge their guilt. They say, I'm sorry you feel this way, God, or we're sorry for everything. It's hollow. They've not owned what they have done. They've not taken responsibility for it. They want to shortcut repentance and skip the pain, go right to the promise of healing and of wholeness. One author, it's from a commentary, he put it this way. The crucial requirement of admitting their guilt required by God in chapter 5 has been omitted. They faced their woundedness, but not their waywardness. One of the clearest principles of the scriptures, one of the clearest principles of the Christian life is there is no resurrection without first crucifixion. There is no glory without suffering. There is no repentance without responsibility. There's so many ways we could say this. There is no returning if you don't know where you're leaving. If you read through the rest of Hosea and you get to the end, there's a similar moment to chapter 6 and chapter 14, but the prayer that Hosea makes is much different than the prayer that the people make. So this is what he says in chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. So remember, when you said return and the Lord, we're talking repentance here. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. So do you notice how it first starts off with, this is not what God has done to us, Rather, this is what we have done to us. We have stumbled because of our iniquity, not because the Lord has torn us into pieces. We have stumbled because of our iniquity. That's the beginning of responsibility. I did this. He continues, say to him, that's to God, say to God, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Can you see the difference? Can you see how they're naming the things that they've done? That Hosea is saying, say this to him. We won't look to Assyria to save us. Why is that a big deal? Because in chapter 5, what did they do? They looked to Assyria to save us. We won't look at the things we made as though they were God. Why? Because that's what they did. They turned from God and looked to things they could touch, see, and hold and say, this will save us. And so Hosea offers us a much clearer picture of what does it look like to name our sin, to take responsibility for it, and to turn from it. Advent 
This season that we're in, that's almost coming to a close, is our annual reminder that we are all prone to look to something other than God for our salvation. We are a people who take matters into our own hands, who would rather move towards something we could touch, we could hear, we could see. We carry around wounds. We're all sick, and we continue to look to diseased salt water. So what did God do? For a people who couldn't take responsibility for their stuff, who didn't really seem interested in turning, at least not in a real way, what did God do? God came near. Instead of sitting back and waiting us for, to do something that we were probably never going to do, God came near, not like an Assyrian king on a mighty war horse, but he came near as a baby laid in a manger wrapped in sheep's wool. This one would live, would suffer, and would die. Several years after that, one of Jesus' apostles would reference this passage from Hosea, explaining the mystery of the gospel. He would reference this passage from Hosea. And the apostle Paul begins doing so this way from 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So first, do you notice how he's saying some things are more important than other things? There's some things that we will talk about and discuss. Just draw your own connections on this. There's some things that we will talk about and discuss that are not as important as other things. As of first importance is the reality that God himself would take up the consequences for our sin. What does God do to a people who will not take responsibility for their sin? He takes responsibility for their sin which means he would absorb the punishment our sins earned for us. He would be torn to pieces. He would be injured for us. And now we hear the reference to Hosea in verse 4. I delivered to you as of first importance, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He's referencing Hosea here that says after two or three days, he will be raised. He'll be torn to pieces. He'll be injured. But after two or three days, he will be raised. Jesus would be crucified, yes, but he would be raised. If your sins have been forgiven, and now you have the promise of a resurrection in Christ, you above all people are most free. The man writing this, shows us what that freedom looks like. Paul experienced this personally. A few verses later in verse 9, he would say, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Another thing that makes me crazy, uh, like false apologies are like false humility, when you meet someone who's clearly amazing at something and they're like, oh, I just stink at this, I'm no good, or, you know, when they're trying to play that weird game, and so maybe you can be like, oh, I got no business being here. I'm the least of the apostles. And you're like, whatever, Paul, you wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You might be tempted to do that, but did you see what he said at the very end? I'm the least of the apostles, not because I'm not gifted or smart or intelligent, but why? Because I persecuted the church of God. What does that mean? Before Paul became a Christian, he was a man named Saul, and he'd made it his ministry to kill Christians. 
to stop this uprising called the church from happening. He tried to squash it and stop it. He did violence in the name of God to try to stop a movement of God. And what happened? Jesus blinded him and knocked him off a horse, changed his life, saved him, and used him to become one of the chief architects of the church. And do you know what Paul did with that part of his story? Did he hide it? Did he live in shame and be like, oh my gosh, if everybody knew what I really did? No. No. Why? Because he was forgiven. And he knew he had a promise of resurrection. So what could he do? Take responsibility and own what he had done. And so in a letter to an influential church, he says, I am the least of the apostles. I shouldn't even be an apostle because this is what I have done. If you look at the life of Paul, he never sugarcoats what he's done. He never hides. He never says, I'm sorry for anything. Or, I'm sorry you Christians felt afraid when I was trying to kill you. He says, this is what I did. But then I met Jesus. More specifically, right after this, he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Could you just feel the freedom here in this text? If you know you are forgiven because of what Christ has done, not because of what you have done. If you know you have the promise of a resurrection, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done, it means there's no more reason for you to hide. Advent is your yearly invitation to return to God, to come home again, and to come to Jesus. How do you do that? Own what you have done. Name it. Confess it. Be honest, and then turn from it and follow Christ. The promise, you will be healed, and eventually you'll be raised. You will experience a physical resurrection, but you'll also experience a resurrection of sorts in this life, like like Paul, who goes from Saul, a murderer, to a minister of peace named Paul. It means instead of bringing death into relationships through honesty, through integrity, through responsibility, you will become a person who brings life into relationships. When you experience this kind of mercy from God, when you receive this promise, everything about your relationships will change. So instead of saying sorry for everything, you say things like, I lied to you. I was cruel and I was harsh. I'm sorry for that. Sorry you feel that way becomes I hurt you and you have good reason not to trust me. Please forgive me. I won't do that again. See, when you're trying to protect yourself, when you're trying to secure a name for yourself, you have to hide all of that stuff. You have to keep turning to Assyria who looks powerful and strong. But when you're free, when you're free through the blood of Jesus... Uh, you you can show the worst parts about you to the world. You, You can own what you have done and it no longer has sway over you. When you are forgiven and healed by God, you live free. No more hiding, no more lying. We own what we've done because we know what we have done has been forgiven. And, you know, maybe most, I don't know how concrete it is. It makes a lot of sense to me. But when we live free this way, we just learn to hold all of this so lightly. And I just mean all of this, this life, our failures, our shortcomings, our stuff, our reputations and possessions, all of this 
because we know that we will be raised. We know that the cross already announces how needy we are, so there's no sense in hiding it anymore. And if I'm going to be raised to an eternal life, then, then it's okay what you think about me, especially if it's true. It's okay. It's okay. The promise of Advent is the promise of a resurrection, and we receive that by returning to God. Confess your sins one to another, be forgiven and be free. So every Sunday we gather to remind ourselves of the invitation inherent in that. We do so by calling our minds to the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread. He said, this is my body given for you. He broke it and he said, eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you eat in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and we drink this wine, we're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. I just want you to notice the imagery here. Um, Open up your cup and just hold the wafer for a second. You who feel like you have something to hide, you who feel like you've done more than anybody should be allowed to do, or what you've done has ruined your life or changed your position with God forever. Remember what has forgiven you. Remember why you can have peace with God. Behold the body of Christ given for you. Eat this and remember what he's done for you. To you who feel pressure and not freedom, after coming to Christ and now you feel like you have so much to do to make up for it, so much to do to prove yourself to God. Remember what keeps you safe with God, what seals your relationship with God, not your performance or your promises, but behold the blood of Christ shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of him. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.